I want you to imagine, if you can, it shouldn't be hard to imagine because this is what we spend all day long imagining. I want you to imagine your ideal life. I want you to imagine, let's close our eyes, have a little eye closing. It's always relaxing to close our eyes and hear the beautiful cicadas sound beautiful but don't look beautiful. I want you to imagine your ideal life. I want you to imagine where you would be living, uh, what you would be doing with your time every day, who you would be with, who you would be spending those days with, who you wouldn't be spending those days with, what you'd have. Now, as you imagine that and you hold that in your mind, um, think about what it's going to take for you to get there. What's going to have to change in your life? What circumstances are going to have to change for you to achieve the good life? What's it going to take? Now, you can open your eyes, but I want you to keep that image of the good life before your mind this morning. Central to the story of the Bible and to the Christian faith um, is that God is the source of life. So everything that is good and true and full of light and life and health and freedom and joy, all of those things come from God and flow from him. And you may not uh, believe that, um, that all good things come from God, um, and that's okay. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I think it makes perfect sense that all things that are good flow from God um, because we are always longing for the good life and chasing it in our own ways. And it makes sense that that would come from a person that we would move toward. Also, um, what is central to the story of the Bible and of the Christian faith is that we humans are always trying to get that good life, joy, freedom, health, without God. In a sense, we want to have a beautiful and full life, but we don't want the source of that life. Um, so we're always trying to get the good life without God. You might not buy that either, and that's okay. But I think it makes sense of why our strivings for the good life feel simultaneously really good and really yucky. When we're out trying to get the life that we want, we feel like we're doing what we were born to do, and we also feel yucky at the same time. It's because we're trying to get the good life without God. And in this story this morning that we're going to read, Jesus shows us that we can try to get the good life with, uh, without God, either by being really rebellious and seeking our own pleasure, or by being really good and keeping all the rules, that both of those are ways that we can try and get the good life without having to deal with God. Now, what we would usually do is, uh, is Susan or someone would read the passage and then I would talk about it. But what I want to do is actually just walk through this passage with you. Some of y'all are very familiar with this passage because you've been in church circles before and you've heard this one. But just hang with me. In this story, Jesus tells to a group of Pharisees who are religious leaders in his culture... He tells a story of a father who has two sons. And this is, this is how it starts. This is in uh, Luke 15, starting in verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, 
Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. This son, this younger son, goes to his father and says, the inheritance that I'm supposed to get after you're gone, I want that now. Uh, When I was studying about this passage, I read this researcher who has done research in Morocco and India and Turkey and Sudan, cultures that are a lot more similar to Jesus' culture than our own. And he asked them what they thought about if a son said, Father, I want your inheritance now. And they pretty much uniformly said that this son should be beaten. That the father should beat the son. And when he asked why, he said, because this person is wishing that his father was dead. He was wishing that his father was gone out of his life. That basically this son is saying, I want you gone so I can get your stuff that I can only get when you're gone. Imagine the pain if you were this father, and this was your beloved son whom you had raised, to hear, uh, I, I don't want you, I just want your stuff. Some of y'all maybe know how that, that feels. And if God is a father to us, imagine the pain for him, if he's real and is really a person, when we take his gifts of wealth and life and talents and other people And we use those things to avoid him. Imagine the pain for him. Now, what happens in this story that's amazing is that the father doesn't beat his son. He actually does it. If you you read on, um, the father divided his property between them. So what the father does, this is an agrarian society. um, So he can't just go to the bank and withdraw the inheritance from his 401k. All of his wealth is in land and in like sheep and goats and stuff like that, right? And so what he actually has to do is he has to liquidate part of the family's assets and make the whole entire estate worth less, about a third less. A third is what this younger son probably would have gotten. And so in the Greek where it says he, he, where it says he divided up his property, in the Greek it actually says he divided up his life. What his family had been building for generations he liquidates and destroys his life work to give the money to his son. This son causes so much pain for not just the father, but everyone in their community that worked on this estate. And this is such a picture of our rebellion from God. But what the father does is he hands it all over to his son at great expense to himself. Okay? Then look what the the son does with it in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property or his father's life in reckless living. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. He ends up pursuing his own pleasure, a life of pleasure. He's rejected his father. He's broken all the rules and he's gone in search of pleasure. And then look what happens to him. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Now, remember, this is a Jewish person who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He goes on a pursuit of pleasure, and as so often has, happens, maybe you've been in that place where you've gone and you've sown your wild oats, as it were. You've sought your own pleasure. 
we always end up at a place where we are less human than when we started. This is a young Jewish man feeding pigs who were the ultimate unclean animal, wishing that he could eat what the pigs were eating, that he could take it out of their mouth. Imagine you would hit the bottom and you got a part-time job taking out the trash at Cafe Arthur or at PB's over here down the street on beautiful uh, places of business on Hawthorne Street. And imagine you were taking out the trash at PB's and the trash juice, you know, is leaking from the bag, as trash juice does. And it splits open, and out comes like some, some half-chewed-up chili dogs from PB's. And you're so desperate that you're like, I wish I could eat that, but I can't. That's where he ends up, after he's pursued his own pleasure, he ends up dehumanized and thinking of doing the things that he could never could have imagined doing in his father's house. And so he puts together a plan. And this is where maybe, so y'all are in church right now, so maybe this will feel familiar to you, is that when you screw up, you're like, I need to make it right, and so I will start doing some of the good things that I wasn't doing before. Like, maybe that's why you're here even at church today. Look at what he, what he says. He says in verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He says, I've screwed up. I'm really hungry. What I want is to go back to my father's property and work for it. I want to start earning my keep. I'm going to be good. I'm going to stop doing all this bad stuff, and I'm going to start doing good stuff that will earn me a place in my father's house. Maybe that's why you came to church today or why you've been coming to church lately. And maybe it's why you would uh, recycle more or decide every morning to wake up and to, to remember to be grateful for things. Or you might start drinking or eating less, running more. You start doing the good things to get in a better space. And this son thinks that he has hit rock bottom. But here's how you know he hasn't hit rock bottom. He's still thinking about himself and what he needs, and not yet about his father. Now, if, you, if this was you, and you were a young person, and you did this, I want you to remember uh, your parents. Well, some of you live with your parents, so it's not that hard to remember them. I want you to imagine that you had massively screwed up in this way and destroyed the family's wealth, maybe burned down the house or something like that, and that now you come back. How is your parent going to receive you in that moment? What would they have to say? Because a lot of times the way that we think God is, is how our parent treated us. But look at what this father does starting in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But listen, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. What does that mean? It means that every day since his son had left and squandered everything and run away from the family and wished his father to be gone out of his life, that every single day this father had stood on the property and scanned the horizon for signs that his son might be coming back home. He saw him when he was a long way off because he was looking for him. He was waiting for him. His eyes were peeled waiting for his boy to return home. 
And then it says he, he felt compassion uh, on him in, in verse 20. His, his father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, for, a, for an older man in this culture to do two things would be really shameful. One, for him to hike up his robe so that people could see his legs. That would be very shameful and kind of like a burlesque routine for an older man to do. But also extremely shameful for a man to run, to run to someone. People came to the paterfamilias. They walked to them. They didn't run to anyone. This man hikes up his robes, and he flat out runs to his boy. And when he gets there, he falls on his neck. And he begins showering his boy with kisses. You know, you ever been kissed like that where someone's like, mwah, 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 mwah. you know, we always tell our kids, oh, we're going to give you a thousand kisses. Okay, are you ready, right? And we don't usually hit a thousand, but several hundred. This man runs out. He totally makes a fool of himself and humiliates himself in front of everyone and falls on his son's neck and begins raining kisses on him. And the son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worried to be called your son. He starts rehearsing these lines that he had made up, but his father's not even listening. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Um, there's a, a pastor named Tim Keller who has a book that you may have read called The Prodigal God. If you like the sermon, the book is better. Um, so you, you can get Keller's book and, and read it. Um, but the term prodigal, which we're usually familiar with as referring to the son, the prodigal son, the word prodigal means someone that's spend, uh, spending resources recklessly or extravagantly. And in this passage, the younger son isn't the isn't nearly as prodigal as his father is. His father is waiting to look like a fool to everyone so that he can literally give his son everything that he has. When he comes back and kills the fattened calf and says, break out the 40-year wine and the 50-year single malt and put a ring on his finger and new sandals and new robes, what he's saying is liquidate everything else that we also have so that I can give it to my boy. And for Jesus, this is the image of God that he wants to give to these religious leaders in his day and that he wants to give to us. That his father in heaven, that God himself is prodigal, is the one that spends recklessly and extravagantly on his boy. That no matter how far you run or no matter how lost you get or no matter how yucky and gross you feel that you have become, that your Father in heaven will still fall on your neck and will rain down kisses on you and will give you more than you ever could possibly have imagined. Because as my kid's storybook Bible says, he loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. And if you are running, couldn't you come home if that was the person that was waiting for you at home. Uh, Lisa Petey, who is a, a therapist that's in our church, she taught us recently that one of the ways to break a stress cycle in your life is to have a 20-second hug, 
which is longer than it sounds like, a 20-second hug. Um, <clears throat> that you hold each other for 20 seconds in an embrace, and at the end of that 20 seconds, almost always your body will go, <sighs> even though you don't want it to. And a lot of times we will break down crying when we are held for that long. Something happens in our bodies. It's a physiological response. And this embrace from his father, this 20-second hug, breaks down this son where he actually does reach the bottom because he realizes that everything his father has for him is all grace, that none of it is deserved, and it's all for him. Now, that's a beautiful story, okay? And that's the part of the story that we're very familiar with. It is actually not the point of the story, Jesus doesn't tell this story to the Pharisees so that they will stop seeking pleasure and turn to God who loves them. Jesus told this story to people, maybe people like us, who would never do something like this, who would never be so foolish as to waste everything. This brother chased the good life without God by seeking pleasure, but his older brother chases the good life without God by denying himself pleasure and by keeping all the rules. Look at what happens with the older brother. Jesus is a great teacher because he sets them up so hard for this. Because um, they're like, yes, God's grace. And he's like, okay, so there's this older son. Let's see about him. Now, verse 25. Um, now, the older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, pled with him to come in. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. Um, you can avoid God by being good. You can wish that God would have nothing to do with you by keeping all the rules. And now it's harder to recognize in ourselves when we're an older brother, but here are some signs that you might, I feel like a pharmaceutical commercial, here are some signs that you might be suffering from older brother. <laughs> the first is that grace makes you bitter and resentful. This son is coming in from the field. He's been working all day. He's been working hard. He never left the farm. He's actually been trying to build back some of that wealth that this stupid brother took with him when he ran off. And his first reaction to hearing that his brother is back, who they all thought was dead, was to be angry. Of course he's angry. He deserves this party. He's been doing everything right. He kept all the rules. He's building the wealth. He's always served his father. And this brother deserves to be punished. Maybe he even deserves to never come back at all. And I wonder, have you ever been the person that does everything the right way? 
like you, you did everything right with your money, you saved, you bought the right kind of house, and then you sold it and bought the next right kind of house so that you could get ahead and take care of your family, and then you know people that you know are really irresponsible with their money, and yet they are doing better than you. And do you feel happy for them? You're like, oh, it's all grace. It's all come. That's just God giving them good, even though they're irresponsible. Have you ever worked hard on a group project? The group project is like the ultimate sociological experiment in college. Because it's like five people, one who works really hard, one that smokes a lot of weed, and three people that aren't really sure what's going on. And maybe you worked hard on this group project, and it drives you nuts when someone else gets the same grade for all the work that you put in, and they were the person that was smoking weed the whole time. Does it drive you crazy when people get the same as you or better, but they didn't have to work as hard to get it? If grace makes you resentful, because grace just means getting something you didn't deserve, a good thing that you didn't earn. If grace makes you resentful, you may be experiencing older brother. Um, also, you may be experiencing older brother if you refuse to party. If you will not party, um, you may be trapped in older brotherness. The father actually comes out of the party. Imagine the music is loud and people are dancing. It's like you can just feel the sweat coming out of the tent, you know, like this, like as we do on Sunday mornings here. And the father comes out and he pleads with him to come in. Just come in and party with me. We killed the fattened calf. But he has reasons why he won't go to the party. He says, all these years I worked and you never gave me even a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. He thinks that his father is stingy. And we often think that our father in heaven is stingy with us. That he doesn't see the work we're doing and doesn't reward us for it. Uh, it's kind of like, I heard someone tell the story, like a father takes a child into a huge toy store. Is toy, does Toys R Us still exist? No. Coming back. All right, Ryan, I'm going to talk to you about that. Um, takes his child into Toys R Us. And he says, uh, here, let's go to the bike section. Would you like one of these? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Cool, let's go to the video games. Look at all these video games. They have, a, they have a Switch. They have whatever the PlayStation is now. You want lots of games? Yes, that sounds amazing. How about just like the regular toys, action figures, dolls? You like those? Yes. What about games? Oh, man. How about a new swing set? Walks them through everything. Do you want this? Yes. And then the father takes the child out of the store and says, I walked you through all that just so I could show you all the things that you're not going to get. That is generally how older brothers think that God treats them. The older brother knows that this party is coming out of his inheritance. The father is leveraging his inheritance to pay for this party, so celebrating and partying feels like a loss. And the question is, do you feel like you will lose something if you celebrate God's grace in someone's life? And then he says, this son of yours, it's one of my favorite lines in all this, this son of yours comes back. It's like he doesn't even know him. This guy, this son of yours, who is his brother, his own flesh and blood. He's failed. Look what he did. He went out with prostitutes. He wasted all your money. He did it wrong, and he was irresponsible, and he's a sinner. 
Don't you realize? Older brothers are always pointing out flaws. Because if you're an older brother, you're not free to love. You're not free to love your brother who failed. You're not free to love your father who you think is a fool. And lastly, you might be an older brother, as we bring this down for a landing. If you treat God like a cop, um, if you think that God is just ready to bust you if you don't keep all the rules perfectly. You know, one of the things that really, like, when I hear it, it, like, just it hits me in the gut is when he says to his father in verse 29, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Really, in the Greek says, I slaved for you. You know what my life has been like for you? It's been like being enslaved. He didn't say, I worked with you, or I enjoyed you, or I was blessed by your abundance. I can't believe I'm your son. He says, I slave for you, and now you have to do for me what I want you to do, or else you're not holding up your end of the bargain. The older brother is really more distant from the father than the little brother. He doesn't want the father either. He just wants his stuff. But it's more intense because he believes that he earned it. Now, this can be hard. What can be part of what's hard about being in a religious environment that does actually believe that there are certain ways to live and ways that God tells us to live a good life. Sometimes a religious environment like church is like a training ground for older brothers. It's the place to, like, younger brothers come to learn how to be older brothers. <laughs> Because um, we can get a taste of how to live with God and the freedom that we have in God and use all the religious trappings and all the wordings to avoid God and to avoid others. Um, the flu season is coming up, so let's just talk about flu. Okay? We won't talk about any other things else that you might get inoculated for, but I'll just say the flu. Um, the way that the flu, doctors can help me here. My understanding is the way that the flu shot works is they give you a tiny little bit of flu so that you don't get the full-blown flu, right? Is that accurate? No? Okay. Rob, this blows up my whole illustration. Is there an inoculation that works like that? What is it? The pig flu, I can't hear anything anyone's saying. Peter, help me out. The fake flu? Oh, the fake flu. Okay, the fake flu inoculation. Just go with me here. Imagine that the way an inoculation works is you get a little bit of it so that you don't catch the real thing. Okay, that was the point of the illustration. Okay. <sighs> um, sometimes being in the religious environment will inoculate you against Jesus because you will get a little bit, which is different than the flu vaccine. And it'll keep you from catching the whole thing. If you've bought that life with God is about earning and deserving, you may have been inoculated against Jesus. That you got just enough to ensure that you will never actually catch the real thing. You may believe all the right ideas about grace and Jesus, but when the time comes, God better pay up. Um, he better give me the community that I want. He better make my kids turn out the way that I want. He better not allow me to suffer. And I say that kind of intensely, um, 
because I think it's good for us to hear. I think Jesus leaves this open-ended for these Pharisees because he wants us to see the good news here. And this is what I want to leave us with. Verse 31 and 32. The father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. If you are an older brother, it's all for you. Everything that the Father has is yours. And that means that you can stop trying. It means that you can rest. It means that you actually can begin to experience freedom because life with God, who is the giver of life, only comes as a gift. Sometimes it's like we're working our fingers to the bone to earn God's minimum wage. And he's like waiting at the door with that old publisher's clearinghouse check, you know, with the camera crew. And we're in the back scrubbing the fryers, you know. And this is why it's free. Jesus, our true older brother, who the scripture calls our older brother, always did what he was asked. Always did what was expected of him. But he received no reward for all his obedience. He received actually all the debt of our squandering. Whether we squandered God's gifts by living for pleasure or by all of our self-righteous, damnable good deeds. He received the debt of that. And when he cried out to his daddy at the cross, God did not receive him. And that's because Jesus and his father had worked out a plan to pay our debt so that we could receive everything from him. Because God wants you with him. That's the point of all this is because God wants to be with you. If you want freedom, let God give it to you. Turn from your selfish pleasure-seeking or from your judgmentalism, which both lead to death, to him, and come into the party. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this story. Uh, Thank you that you are good to leave us with a cliffhanger which is such an invitation. Lord, you know us much better than we know ourselves. And Lord Jesus, you are smiling on us. You are holding back the curtain to a party with your Father. And all, all you ask us is to, let, is to let down what we think is going to give us life and just to come in. So, Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace to come into your party now, we pray in your name. Amen.